John 11, 16 through 25. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed inside in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will have life even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Kenda. <clears throat> well, happy Easter. Uh, the, I guess the official greeting of the saints for some several thousand years, dating back to about 400, is I would say he is risen and you would say he is risen indeed. We're going to get a little life in this place, so I'm going to say it again, and I want you just to clap and cheer like your team just won the Super Bowl. He is risen. He is risen All right. For the Christian who understands the power of the resurrection, it changes our life forever. And if we can get so excited about our team and a ball, we can certainly get excited about what God has done through the power of the resurrection that has literally changed our life here on earth and forevermore. Now, our kids are in with us today. Welcome, kids. Glad you're with us. You got a little packet when you came in. Uh, we want you to fill that out. I'd love to see your uh, artwork at the end of today. Listen, kiddos, if God speaks to you as we read and teach from his word, listen to him. I remember back as early as four or five years old, clearly the Lord speaking to me and prompting my heart and... Um, so listen to the voice of God, and you've got those little things to kind of keep you busy too, to help you <clears throat> as we process. You may have heard this story before, but uh, uh, my daughter, middle, uh, my middle daughter Ellie, she's right here in the front. Um, this is a long time ago. Uh, she may have been five or six, and we were reading through the passage after the resurrection when Jesus appears to the disciples for the first time. And I asked the kids... What do you think Jesus told them when he appeared for the first time after resurrection? And Claire starts thinking really deeply about it, and Ellie just busts out, ta-da! I did it, you guys, I did it! And that makes me laugh every time I read that story. You remember that, Ellie? Ta-da! I think about this and, uh, and that, and the resurrection is certainly... No, uh, no magic trick, no incantation, no book of chants that Jesus had to read out to rise from the dead. And this is not any random holiday on par with Thanksgiving or Valentine's Day or the 4th of July. This is the day that we celebrate the power of God on display through the resurrection of Jesus. And if you aren't a believer or maybe you joined us today and you're a little skeptic about this whole thing, I invite you to look at this event so closely because this is what separates every other religion. No other religious leader 
said that he was going to rise from the dead and then actually did it. And not just did it and we don't know kind of how it all happened, but through the Gospels we have this exact account. And the Apostle Paul would later say that Jesus appeared himself bodily to over 500 people at one time. Now imagine you're in that crowd and you see the resurrected Jesus and there's something so crazy different about him and the scar is still actually in his wrists. What are you going to do when you go back home? Are you going to just kind of hide that thing, keep that a secret until you die? No, you're going to tell the world. And this is the very birth of Christianity. The first two sermons recorded after Jesus was resurrected. That's why we see thousands of people coming to Christ. Not by force or coercion, but it was the explosion of joy from an encounter with the risen Christ. And this wasn't out of the blue either. Jesus had talked about this for several times. One of the most significant is the text that we're going to look at today in John 11, where Jesus claims... Not that he can pull off a resurrection, but that he is the resurrection. And here's the message that I really want us to hear today. That whatever you need, he can supply. Whatever you need, he can supply. So many times the message of every person and every product being sold to us is that they can be the things that solve the problems that we're facing. And many of us bite on that and we've purchased those things. I've told you about some of my infomercial purchases that didn't work out as they had promised. And however, as you go through life, you're going to find out the same thing. Even the best products don't fix us. They might make life a little more comfortable, a little less complicated, a little more luxurious. But it doesn't deal with the greatest threat, the greatest enemies of our soul, sin, and death. All the money in the world, all the ingenuity in the world can't solve the problems of sin and death. And here's a few things that I think God wants us to hear today. One is that God values your life. He values your life. He sees you and he knows you. Scripture says he knows your thoughts before you ever think them. We see Jesus here today with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And several times we see him in doing life with these people. They were his good friends. We see Jesus up close, knowing them, loving them, caring for them. In the same way that he longs to know and to care for you. Remember, Jesus gives us a picture of who God is. And if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We want to know what God is like, then we look to Jesus. And he's told us of himself that he is loved. Jesus said several chapters before this in John 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, loved the world, not had pity on the world, not concern for the world, but from this supernatural agape love for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Even here, when we enter this text, he's headed towards Jerusalem, back to Bethany, and then he'll head back to Jerusalem and we'll start the events of Holy Week to show us the full extent of his love for us on the cross, fulfilling that John three sixteen statement. But here's why this passage today, and we're fixing to jump in it, is such a big deal. 
is because sin and death is our greatest enemy and Jesus is the only remedy. This is the remedy of our sin. The context is Jesus is at the funeral of a friend. It starts way back in the beginning of chapter 11 and we won't go through the whole story. But Jesus gets wind that his friend, his dear friend, Lazarus, is sick. Now, as Jesus would travel around, this would be one of the places he would stop. This is where he would relax and rest. These were his close friends. And he gets wind that Lazarus is sick, and they've asked, the, they've asked Jesus to come and heal him. And you're going to see that later on in the story when Martha and Mary both intercept Jesus. When he finally does get there and Lazarus is dead, they say, Jesus, if you only would have been here, you could have healed him and prevented this death. But Jesus tarries, and he shows up at the funeral. In verse 17, it says, when he came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. You know, when you go to a funeral, you think about death. Maybe you think about your own death. Have you ever been to a funeral and thought about, I wonder who's going to say some words at at my funeral and the songs and if you're maybe even advanced in years and this is a real reality within the next decade or two maybe you've even written out this is how what I want done and what I want said and what I want sung Ecclesiastes says it's better to even go to the house of mourning than to the house of celebration for this very purpose because we get to look at our life and the breadth of it Death is a problem, isn't it? We can deny it. We can fight against it. We can use all the skin-tightening cream that we want. And it might work for a moment. But death is still coming at 100%. It was never meant to be this way. As we look at the story, jump in it with me. I don't think I even have this part on the screen. Jump in it with me in verse 28. If you brought a Bible, you could look there or find a device. John 11, verse 28. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying, In private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in his house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and go out, they followed, supposing that she was going to weep. And it would have been custom for those with her to go weep with her. And Mary came to where Jesus was. He saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? He said to him, Lord, come see, verse 35, Jesus wept. And Jews said, see how he loved him. You see this picture of Jesus encountering the death of his friend Lazarus. You say in verse 33 that he was deeply moved. In verse 35 that he himself wept. It also says here that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. That word is the, 
the Greek word that we get uh, like, a, like an, an animal like uh, snorting or blowing air rapidly out of their nose as if to warn someone else close to them deeply moved Jesus is and greatly troubled almost to the point of anger. What is Jesus so emotional and upset about? I think it's the death of Lazarus as just a microcosm of all that sin has done, all the pain that sin has brought on. Remember, Jesus was there in the beginning, Colossians 1 tells us. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible. All things created through him. That means Jesus was there when Lazarus was just an idea. Jesus, God in the flesh, knows how beautiful things were created to be. The beauty of walking with God, of knowing and being known. Nothing to hide, nothing to pose, nothing to prop up, no filters needed. Yet sin brings suffering and distortion and death. Verse 38, it says, Jesus is deeply moved again. When Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. The psalmist remind us that God knit us together in our mother's womb, Psalms 139. And Jesus was a part of that, this creation of last, so unique, so special, one of a kind. And now he stands at his tomb seeing the full effect of sin and disease and decay. He's at the tomb weeping over all the chaos that sin has caused. And it wasn't supposed to be this way. And here's the point, I think, of just really two points. The first point is with Jesus, you never really die. With Jesus, you never really die. This is what Jesus would say to the sisters, Mary. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. With Jesus, you never really die. Spurgeon said it this way, death comes to the ungodly man as an execution, but to the righteous as a summons to a party at the Father's palace. Isn't that amazing? But this is the reality we live in, the full effect of sin all around us, death looming for every one of us. Sin seems to be increasing all the more just this week. Just the hatred in our society, the hate against Asian Americans, unreal that these things would happen. The racial tension, the rising hatred in America, the lack of grace that we extend to other people. Just all over the place, all a result of sin. And James 1, 15 tells us, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. And this is the road we're all on, feeling the sting and the effect of sin, feeling the pain of death, both of these great enemy that Jesus came to deal with. 2 Corinthians 5, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Only Jesus has the power to decisively 
offer us new life. This is the beauty of that statement of Jesus who says, I am the resurrection and the life. I don't just have the power to pull off a resurrection. I don't just know the one who does the resurrections and I'm going to put in a good word for you. No, Jesus makes this claim. I am the resurrection. With Jesus, you never really die. And so all of us can look at death confidently. As a pastor who consoles families in this time of death and grieving, I can tell you how really celebratory it is for a saint that has lived a long, faithful life with fruit and evidence of their trust in Jesus. And yet I can tell you of meeting with different families who, whose loved ones did not have that reputation, but who had squandered their life living for themselves. And this is the good news of Easter. With Jesus, you never really die. But the second point is so evident here. Without Jesus, you never truly live. Without Jesus, you never truly live. You can go through all the motions of life and you can go through all the things and celebrate all the milestones and have the common grace of God expressed through some sorts of happiness just as we all experience the the great weather of spring, the smell of freshly cut grass, whatever it is that brings you great joy in this life, we can all experience that. But the depth of it is limited. I mean, extremely limited Without Christ, you never truly live. There is a kind of life, the true life that you were destined to live, that never even exists without Christ. And this is what Jesus is trying to get his friends, Mary and Martha, to understand even at this moment. He's trying to get you friends to understand. Eternal life starts at the moment that you give your life to Christ and it never ends. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul says that he imparts new life to us. We are a new creation. Living life to the fullest even now. Born through new life through the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls us being born again. But this is not just about life after death, the promise of heaven the marriage supper of the Lamb, all the things, the the streets of gold, the crystal sea. It's not just about life after death. Martha understood that. Even you see that as they're talking. Yes, Jesus, I understand that he'll be raised on the last day. But you don't have to wait until the last day to be resurrected. You don't have to wait You can live in the power of the resurrection every day. The power of these words combined in verse 25. I am the resurrection. I came to deal decisively with death. I am the resurrection and the life. I came to offer new life beginning now to anyone who would believe. Who would come to me. Who would announce earning and striving acceptance earning and striving for heaven, who would give up on all of those things and put all their chips to the center of the table to place the only bet of their life on Jesus. 
And to be honest, most of us really stop here. This is the great warning to the church in the West. We never experience the abundant life that Christ offers because we never move past this theological understanding that we will be with Christ in heaven one day when we die. We understand that, the, that whole part. I got my ticket. I'm going to go to heaven. But that the Holy Spirit wants to live in and through you now. The power of the resurrection alive in you now. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's going to be an odor, for he has been dead for days. For four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Does that mean if they didn't believe, they wouldn't see the glory of God? If they didn't believe that Lazarus wouldn't be raised? I don't think so. I think Jesus had decisively determined before he ever got to Bethany, he was going to raise Lazarus. However, these two would have missed the supernatural work of God, the glory of God on display. They took away the stone in verse 41, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, verse 45, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. The power of the resurrection at work. This is an incredible story, but the truth is Lazarus isn't still here. There did come another time where he actually did die. And this is the problem that we all face. And Jesus is here offering us life to the fullest. I love Paul's prayer. If you want to put your finger there and flip over to Ephesians 1. I think I have this on the screen too. The, all of Ephesians 1, such a beautiful passage. I've been spending a lot of time in it this week as it talks about the resurrection This is Paul's prayer. He's praying for the church. Look at what he prays in verse 19. He's praying that the church would see this. Life to the fullest. And what is the exceedingly great power? The exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Think about that for a moment. The exceeding greatness of the power of God. And Paul says, toward you who believe. Not the, just the exceedingly great power that it took to raise Jesus from the grave. No, this is the exceedingly great power of God 
toward you or for you. The power that was to be exerted here raising Lazarus from the grave would only be find a more prominent stage. Just a short time from now when Jesus would raise himself from the grave. And the disciples were so astonished and Jesus would appear to them and they were shocked. They couldn't believe it. They thought they had seen a ghost. And this same power, church, is available, is toward you, is for you who believe. A lot of us encounter problems and difficulties in life and we get defeated and discouraged and we look at the surmounting greatness of the problem. And Paul is praying for the church and Jesus is trying to get this across to us, friends, that no matter how big the problem is, his exceedingly great power that raised Jesus from the dead is for us. Not just to cognitively know, even as the sisters did, oh yeah, we know that Jesus, Lazarus, is going to be raised on the last day. And that certainly is a true reality. Scripture talks about there is coming a day when we will hear the trumpet blow in the air and the dead in Christ will rise first. And all of those that remain, that have not died yet, who are believers in Jesus, part of the church, will meet him in the air. And that's an incredible day and we look forward to that. But if you're not careful, that alone will lead to a very discouraged and dead faith while we're here. It will lead to just mental and cognitive ascent. Yeah, I know that's true, and it's going to happen one day, but God has divorced himself to my problems right now. I've got a spouse I don't know how to deal with. I've got some neighbors that are driving me crazy. I've got some kids that are walking through some things. And the problem, Luke, is it is, it is increasingly great. Where is God when I need him? Friends, his power is available to you right now. And some of that supernatural power sometimes removes the problem. And you pray and you ask and God in his power, and I've seen this happen in my own life, and I've prayed with others and seen it happen in their lives, the problem is removed supernaturally. You walk through the book of Acts and there's account after account of the problem supernaturally being removed. But you know of the 11 disciples, 10 of them died a martyr's death. They prayed that the problem would be removed and it wasn't removed. Friends, it's just as supernatural that God grants you faith to persevere through the problem as it is of him taking it away. And we ignore that a lot of times, that God is at work. Just think about, we need to have this vocabulary more and more available to us. This miracle narrative that we live in every day. You know what? The sun came up this morning. Were any of you a part of that? Did you organize? You got to push a button and tell the sun when to come up? No, God did that. And every morning he says, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Or the fact that you woke up this morning and you took a deep breath and your mind came alert. What a miracle that is. Again and again, all the miracles we see. God could be working right now on the other side of the world. Solving a problem that you're going to face next week and you'll never know the extent of it. But God is working all things together for good of those that love him and called according to his purpose. Friends, God is at work, supernaturally working. 
And he's at work, supernaturally working. Every time our coworker says something that irritates us. And we're about two seconds from saying something back in retaliation and lighting that whole thing ablaze. And yet at that very moment, supernaturally, the Holy Spirit is able to give you the discipline to hold your tongue. The supernatural work of God. He's always working, friends. Think about the fact that you've been rescued from the domain of darkness. When you could do nothing about your sin and nothing about the upcoming death, yet God in his great love and mercy has rescued you. Talk about a supernatural, miraculous work of God. I was blind, but now I see. Lost, but now I found. I was striving, but now at peace. If you're still in Ephesians 1, look at that verse just right before that. In verse 18 that Paul is saying, this is, I probably don't have time for this. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul praying that the church would know that the riches of the glorious inheritance of God is the saints. You are his inheritance. This is why I try to remind us that we are so deeply loved by the God of the universe. Do you know why God created Lazarus or why he created you? For himself. He didn't need another worker getting things done or a farmer planting seeds or a soldier fighting battles or a giver filling the coffers. He didn't need that. He wanted a relationship with you. Not just your belief in him. He wanted to be with you and go to work with you and be with you as you play and with you as you rest and with you as you encounter and, and, and enjoy your kids and with you in the midst of Suffering. He wants to spend time with you today. Not just because it's Easter Sunday. He also wants to spend time with you on Tuesday and next Saturday. He wants to, he wants to be with you. And this sometimes is what we lose in the religious jargon. That salvation is an ATM transaction and I punch in the right code and then I get heaven for eternity. And I'm going to live like I want to here. But God has not left you to walk through here alone. He told his disciples that he was going to go. It was better for him to go and the Holy Spirit to come and that they would do greater works than Jesus did. I always thought as a kid, what does that mean? That, you know, Jesus walked 300 yards on water and I'm going to walk 400 yards? Greater works. No, the greater work is what he's doing inside of you even now. Conforming you from one degree of glory to the next. The great potter taking you like clay, shaping you and molding you into the image of Jesus Christ himself. And then planting you in a dark world, sin-wrecked, broken world, so that you, friend, would be lights in the midst of darkness. And that he would be with you every step of the way. This is the great love story of the Bible. How God made you to walk in relationship with him. How sin wrecked that. Distorted the glory of God woven in your DNA. And instead of dismissing us when we blew it. He said he would come himself on a rescue mission to save us from ourselves. So he could remind us of this very thing that he loves you. 
Friends, that he could look you in the eye and invite you to say, come with me. Come follow me. Come dine with me. Weeping over the sin and all the pain that it's brought into your life, all of which he took upon himself to the cross. I love that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. That line that said he took our sin and our sorrow and he made it his very own. He bore our burdens to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Jesus feels as his own every broken heart, every shattered dream, every sorrow. There would be another time in the life of Jesus that he would weep. But no one was there to weep with him. The gospel says in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus was weeping with such a great anguish that all the capillaries in his face began to burst and he was pouring off drops of blood, but no one would respond. His father would turn his face away. His own disciples that gathered there, Jesus would implore them to pray with him during this dark night, would fall asleep. He would die on the cross just a few hours from that, friendless and godless. On a cross for my sin and yours. But because of that, I know he'll never forsake me. He was forsaken so I could never be. He died so that nothing could ever separate me from God. Through his death on the cross. That I would never have a season of suffering where God would not hear me in my pain or he would not weep with me in my pain. That Jesus would never turn his face away from me because he wrestled death and took the full force of its sting, my sin, and put it away forever through the resurrection. This is the words of Jesus and they offer to us even today. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Friends, I know behind the Easter clothes, a lot of you are fighting great battles. And the stench of sin has come very close to your home. And the effect of sin and the battle of sin, whether addiction or depression discouragement, or even death. And you've gotten really good at putting on a smiling face and putting on some fresh deodorant and a set of clothes and going to work and putting that smile on your face and acting like everything's just okay. When deep down your soul is suffering. Listen, friends, Jesus is here. And he does not want you to walk through that alone. He invites you to come to him It'd be a pastoral malpractice not to give you an invitation. Even as Jesus did these sisters, he said, do you believe? Do you believe? Friends, my invitation to you is the same of Jesus, to place your faith and trust in him and his death on a cross, his burial in the grave, his ascension to heaven and his eventual return. Friends, do you believe?
The angels moved the stone that morning not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. I'm going to pray for us. And just right where you're at, I just want you to do business with the Lord. I want to pray for you. I really feel there's people that are fighting such great battles in their own life and they just need the power of God to enter in. If that's you, if you would just say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I'm fighting just such a great battle at home and I need to see the power of God in my life. Would you just raise your hand up? Anybody, I'm fighting such a great battle all across the room, such a great battle. Battling addiction, battling discouragement, battling doubt. Father God, I know you're good and that you love us so much that you would send your son to die a death on the cross of our behalf so that we might be rescued, that we might be adopted, that we might be brought in. And Lord, if we're honest, as we look out, sometimes our problems seem way bigger than your power. So we ask this morning, God, that you would adjust our view. Help us to see things as you see them. We pray against the enemy and his power and its effects in our lives and in our friends' lives. The religious fog that has seemed to settle in the South in which we live. People say they believe one thing, but their lives are evident that they don't. I pray, Father, you would bring a revival to the church. You would bring healing to our families. Lord, you would do a work in us on this Easter Sunday that we would never forget. And then, Jesus, I pray for those that aren't part of your family in here today. Maybe they're kicking the tires on this whole Christianity thing. Lord, I pray that you would grant them the gift of faith. And this morning would be the day that they take a step across the line of faith, placing their trust solely in you. Thank you for this resurrection story that we get to live in. Lord, we pray that you would do the supernatural in our lives. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray, amen.